0: I do dimly perceive that whilst everything around me is ever-changing, ever-dying, there is, underlying all that change, a living power that is changeless, that holds all together, that creates, dissolves, and
1: recreates. The voice of Gandhi. It was not the voice of an orator, still less of a dictator, as Jawaharlal Nehru remembered it, it was a quiet voice. His voice never rose above a certain uh, timbre. It, he never raised his voice, but it was a penetrating voice. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields.
2: If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy.
0: Change within the system. Scala. Hollow man of anger and bitterness, all must be left to a bygone age.
2: I understand victory. I understand sacrifice.
0: Speak, Ola.
2: I may not get there with you, but we, as a people, will get to the promised land.
0: Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing
1: will save the government.
2: Speak, Ola. With Tony Wilson, Welcome to episode 4 of the Speak Ola podcast. I am Tony Wilson and today, as the preamble suggests, we turn to Gandhi. Father of modern India, the Mahatma, one of the great and celebrated figures of the 20th century. I've put quite a few of his speeches up on Speak Ola and today we're going to look at five of them. Four relating to the independence struggle and one on spirituality that he delivered at Kingsley Hall in 1931. To take me on an independence journey with Gandhi and his speeches is perhaps the best credentialed Gandhi historian alive today. His name, Ramachandra Guha. Over the last couple of decades, he's focused on the life of Gandhi. He wrote a book, Gandhi Before India, focusing on the South African years. He wrote a book, India After Gandhi, talking about India's formative years as a nation. And most recently, in 2018, he released his epic, Gandhi, 1914 to 1948, The Years That Changed the World. I love chatting to Ram. I first became acquainted with his writing, with his famous book on cricket, A Corner of a Foreign Field. But reading the Gandhi biographies and talking to him for an hour was just incredible. His knowledge, his ability to shine a light on a life, what I learned about India then and now. This ends up not just being about the speeches, it ends up being about the whole Gandhi show. So I'll press play on my interview with Ram shortly. But before I do I will mention great supporters of this podcast, Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. They've been on board since episode two. I think in the same way I love speeches, they love avocados. From the science of choosing the right soil and growing the right seeds to the care and skill and love that goes into getting the avocados from the vine and into stores in a state of pure avocado perfection. Green skin and purple skin avocados. You can check them out at lovemyavocados.com.au and also on Facebook and Instagram. But now, Ram Guha. Ramachandra Guha, welcome to the Speak Ola podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on. We're finally dealing with a great speech, a change the world type speech. And in fact, we're going to be talking about several change the world type speeches uh, from the mouth of one Mahatma Gandhi. Thank you so much for joining us, Ram.
1: Thank you, Tony. Great to be here.
2: So tell us a bit about your involvement with Gandhi. Um, he's been so much of your life. Uh, when did you first start writing about Gandhi.
1: So, uh, Tony, I started my career uh, about 35 years ago as a historian of the environment. And my first book dealt in part with a famous peasant movement to protect the Himalayan forest known as the Chipko movement. And this is the movement which gave birth to the concept of tree huggers, because these were peasants who threatened to hug the tree to to stop them being felt uh, uh, by outside loggers. And the leaders of this movement were some remarkable Gandhians who did not know Gandhi themselves, but had been inspired by his idea to do community work, uh, ecological restoration, and, of course, nonviolent protests. Then I discovered that Gandhi himself was a precocious environmentalist. And if you read his writings of the 20s and 30s, he's warning against uh, the destruction that is going to be caused by global consumerism and the industrial economy. Well, then I moved on to becoming a historian of uh, modern India, uh, post-independent India, and, of course, uh, the history of our country is greatly shaped by Gandhi. In between, I wrote a book on cricket. And although Gandhi had very little interest in cricket per se, he profoundly influenced how the game was played in India. And my book on cricket, which is called A Corner of a Foreign Field, which is published in Australia and the UK as well, revolves around the career of a family of untouchable, low-caste cricketers, for whom sporting success was a vehicle of social mobility and also uh, it made them exemplary public figures in that depressed community in western india and gandhi knew them uh, in, you know inspired them so even in a book on cricket gandhi featured but the environment cricket politics so i decided i must finally pay my dues settle my accounts with this man and i wrote a two volume biography of gandhi Effectively, Gandhi has been part of my professional life for the last four decades.
2: Well, there are an amazing two books, uh, Gandhi Before India and then Gandhi 1914 to 1948, which is the book that's occupied me for the last couple of weeks. Ram, can you tell us a little bit about Gandhi as a speaker? I played a little snippet from Nehru which said that he never really raised his voice that he was a, a soft speaker yet incredibly compelling. Um is there any evidence? There's not much many recordings,
1: but what is the evidence of him as a speaker? So, uh, Nehru is broadly right, Tony. You know, unlike these leonine, macho, aggressive, self-confident orators that we have today around the world, including in my country, uh, Gandhi spoke gently, softly. Uh, There's some footage of his speaking into the camera and he's looking down, not looking straight in as a a, a practiced television speaker or orator would. He conveyed sincerity, authenticity, love, compassion through his words. He was a wonderful writer, by the way, Tony. You know, he wrote, he edited uh, a weekly magazine for 40 years and he was a master both of English prose and of prose in his native language, Gujarati. So his, his thoughts were fully formed. His language was clear. So when he came to speak, uh, the ideas were very clear, lucid, compelling, carefully argued, never polemical, persuasive, but never polemical. So in a kind of hyper uh, hyper emotional social media age, uh, you know, the age of Trump and Modi and Putin uh, and Boris Johnson, I don't know where Gandhi would have fit because his his speaking style was very understated, very persuasive, but understated, reflective, you know, uh, rather than hectoring, aggressing in your face, trying to bulldoze you into uh, accepting his point of view, which is how uh, orators generally speak.
2: Well, we're going to visit a few of the speeches today. In fact, five in total. Four are going to relate to the independence movement and Gandhi's political activities, and and one is a spiritual speech. But we're going to start with Banaras University, 1916. Ram, the title of your chapter is called Coming Out in Banaras. Can you explain why you chose that title?
1: Yeah. So uh, just a brief uh, biographical background to where Gandhi was in 1916 and where he was coming from. So Gandhi was born in 1869. Uh, in a small town in what is now the state of Gujarat in Western India, on the coast. Uh, he grew up in small towns in that state uh, and went to London to graduate as a lawyer. Comes back uh, 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 with a bar, in law, bar at law qualification and fails to establish himself at the Bombay Bar. And that failure, of course, um, changed the course of history. Normally, it's successes that change the course of history. But if Gandhi had succeeded in the Bombay bar, he would have been a moderately successful professional lawyer and not a change maker. His failure uh, meant he had to look for other opportunities. In South Africa, there was a growing Indian diaspora. Two businessmen, Indian businessmen, were fighting. They needed a Gujarati lawyer to settle their dispute. They needed someone who knew the language of Gujarat and also the English law, because that's the South African courts followed. The British law. Gandhi got a commission to settle this dispute and he stayed 20 years and he discovered India in South Africa. You know, he was a person of his time and place. Uh, He was a Gujarati, upper caste, vegetarian, very pious. What happened in South Africa was that he discovered that the Indian community was extraordinarily diverse. It was not just Gujarati, they were Tamils, they were Bengalis, they were North Indians, it was not just Hindus, they were Muslims, they were Parsis, uh, they were Christians. So the extraordinary diversity of India is what he discovered in South Africa. After 20 years as an activist there, he comes back to India in January 1915. And his mentor, a now sadly forgotten, but very great Indian liberal called Gopal Krishna Gokhale, tells Gandhi, you've been out of India for 20 years. For one year, don't open your mouth on political or social subjects. Just tour the country and get to know the land that you left so long ago. So he spends a year virtually in a railway compartment. I mean, he travels all over this extraordinarily large country by second-class rail, meeting people, getting to know the lives of peasants or workers, understanding the countryside, uh, the diversity of India, ecological, cultural, linguistic, and so on. And for a full year, 1915, he says nothing at all. In, early in 1916, he is invited to the inauguration of a new university in the great holy city of Banaras on the Ganga, the Banaras Hindu University, and the organizers invited him because of the remarkable work he'd done in South Africa fighting for the rights of the Indian diaspora. And they expected him to speak on the problems of Indian in the diaspora, instead of which he gave his first political speech, which is why I call it coming out in Banaras. It's an incredible
2: speech. I think the the Viceroy Harding was invited along to the event. It was a an all India sort of affair and a, and a four day celebration. And it started. The Viceroy thought it was going very well. I believe on day one.
1: Yeah, because he came and uh, the Viceroy uh, had not long before this been subjected to an assassination attempt which failed. Uh, so he came. Uh, there were snipe, you know, gunmen all along his route, including on the. Or, or the roof of uh, the buildings alongside, because they were worried about the vice. Another attempt on at the viceroy. He came. He gave a speech. He saw the facilities. He saw the amphitheater. He had lunch, and then he drove back. And the uh, celebrations continued on the second and third day, which is when Gandhi spoke. What were the themes of the speech? How
2: did he get started? What did he want to target?
1: Well, uh, it starts rather slowly with uh, how happy he's been here, that uh, he is to be in Banaras with a tribute to. Annie Besant, who was an extraordinary Irish woman who had become an Indian uh, nationalist and was actually instrumental in setting up the university. And then he gets political. So among the themes he speaks about is the fact that educated Indians tend to speak English and not the language of the people. And he particularly focuses on Hindi or Hindustani, because that's the most important language spoken in India. And he says, uh, why aren't young people speaking Hindi nowadays? If you speak English, you only communicate with your fellow middle class, elite, westernized, somewhat rootless kinds of people. Then he comes to uh, the dress worn by the funders of the university. So the university was, you know, it was the first Indian university in that the existing universities in India were funded by the British. They were colonial universities. This was supposed to be a kind of an Indian enterprise. And Mrs. Besant and... Her colleague, uh, Madan Mohan Malviya, who was an important nationalist of the time working in Banaras, raised a lot of funds from the Indian Maharajas. And the Indian Maharajas who had funded this university come, uh, you know, because uh, they, they have sponsored this new show. And Gandhi goes at them. Gandhi talks about their jewelry. I mean, he says, certainly it is a gorgeous show, an exhibition of jewelry, which made a splendid feast for the eyes of the greatest jeweler who would come from Paris. But let me compare the richly bedecked noblemen, that is the Maharajas, with the millions of the poor. And I feel like saying to these noblemen, there is no salvation for India unless you strip yourselves of this jewellery and hold it in trust for your countrymen.
2: <laughs> so, he's, so he's had a look at the, the gentry, the, the funders, the people that, are, that, are, that have provided all the money for this event, and he's, uh, he's gone them. <laughs>
1: Exactly. And then he goes on. He says 75% of the population are agriculturalists, uh, men who grow two blades of grass. And, uh, you know, how can you dress like this and think you're emancipating the people of India? So, he first has a go at the kind of uh, hypocrisy of the funders. He also talks about how the educated young men must speak Hindi. They must reach out to the peasantry. They must learn the practice of agriculture, not just learn the law or language or, or, or whatever. And then he comes to the question of violence and uh, uh, alludes to the fact that when the Viceroy had come uh, the previous day, uh, he was worried about assassination. And he says that there are these anarchists around. At that stage in 1916, there was a vigorous anarchist movement, particularly in Bengal, but also in Western India, around the town of Pune. And he says these anarchists are, you know, uh, idealists. But they're misguided idealists. You know, they they are well-intentioned. They want the British out. They want self-government. But uh, I don't approve of the methods they're using. And at this stage, Ali Besant, who's uh, uh, the host hostess, and whom uh, Gandhi actually admired in his days in South Africa, Ali Besant is now embarrassed. First, by Gandhi's attack on uh, uh, the Maharajas, the richly bejeweled princes who had funded the university. And second, by his qualified, I wouldn't say approval, but the fact that he had some sympathy for the anarchists. He profoundly disagreed with their means, with violence as a method of political, uh, you know, as a political tactic, he disagreed. But he felt these were well-intentioned young men. Uh, they felt keenly about the oppression of Indians. And Ali Besant then said, you have to stop, you have to stop. And Gandhi stops.
2: So the crowd is cheering at this point, okay. I gather. he's getting He's getting a lot of positive feedback from the crowd, but... Andy
1: Besant is saying, stop, stop. But he doesn't stop at that point, does he? Well, he continues for a bit and then finally he has to stop. Finally, the Maharaja of Darbhanga, who's in the chair, basically forces him to stop. And if you read in my biography, I talk about the reactions of uh, people in the, uh, you know, uh, the people cheering in the crowd are mostly students, but they're also British civil servants present in the audience and the Maharajas. And I talk about how they start leaving one by one. You know, they're so disgusted. And Ali Besant sees them leaving, is worried, indeed appalled that uh, the future of our university is at stake because the potential and actual funders are getting really pissed off with Gandhi's rant. And then she tries to stop him, but he continues. And then finally, the chair the Maharaja Dharamanga declares the meeting closed. So it's an extraordinary political debut, effectively. And uh, uh, ironically, uh, those who invited him and hoped he'd speak on South Africa and the rights of Indians in South Africa and the work he'd done for that, instead of which he gave a homily on what politics in India should be like.
2: I think Gandhi thought that if he had been allowed to continue, he would have stressed the non-violent Part of his philosophy to a greater degree, but as it was, there's almost like a confusion, especially the way that he spoke about the anarchists
1: in Bengal. Um, there was even a push to have him arrested, wasn't there? Briefly, briefly. So, uh, so he went off. He he left uh, Benares, and there was a long correspondence following uh, he uh, his departure, uh, which is in the archives in Lucknow, which I found, where they're talking about his arrest. Should they, uh, you know, one school of British officials thought they should arrest him. Make an exemplary case out of him because of his tacit approval of the anarchists, though not of their methods. And another school felt this would make him a martyr and blow the thing out of proportion. And this sort of maybe it's best to let sleeping dog, dogs lie. But the speech itself, you know, we are talking about a time, Tony, a hundred and odd years ago, before the internet. But it's extraordinary how news of that speech traveled via newspapers, telegrams, the Bush Telegraph, word of mouth. And this speech really made Gandhi well-known in large parts of India.
2: We'll move on to the 1922 speech at the Great Trial. Now, this is perhaps Gandhi's most famous speech. Can you again give us some background to the trial? Why was he on trial? And talk a little bit about the non-cooperation movement.
1: So uh, Gandhi comes back, as we have discussed, comes back to India in 1915, travels for a year, In 1916, he gives a speech in Banaras. In 1917, he gets uh, involved in three important local movements. Uh, A movement in the eastern state of Bihar among indigo peasants who were oppressed by their planters. And Gandhi fights for lower taxes and better working conditions. A movement in the city of Ahmedabad on behalf of textile workers demanding higher wages. And another movement of peasants in the state of Gujarat demanding remission from high land taxes. So Gandhi in 1917 more or less sinks his teeth in the lives of ordinary working people, peasants and laborers in different parts of India. In 1919, he leads the All India Movement against a very obnoxious piece of colonial legislation which could arrest without uh, without bail and so on and so forth, which was aimed at suppressing discontent and sedition, as the British called it. And in 1920, he launches... Um, It's the first of three major political movements, the non-cooperation movement, which asks Indians not to wear foreign cloth, not to uh, practice in British law courts, to boycott schools and colleges, to stop paying taxes in preparation for independence. And it's an extraordinary movement in which there's particularly a very high degree of Hindu-Muslim cooperation. I mean, Hindus and Muslims then as now were the two major religious communities in India, then as now their relations were rather fraught, you know, uh, sometimes civil and courteous, sometimes shot through with conflict and discord and animosity and hostility. And Gandhi is able to cultivate friendships with Muslim leaders and have a widespread Muslim participation in this movement. And of course, it brings the British down to their knees. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people come out the streets. Many thousands are jailed. And then there's one incident of violence in a Police station in northern India, and Gandhi calls off the movement immediately. And so he, the British, before this incident of violence, the British had decided to arrest him anyway. I think it's on the fifth of March that they decide to arrest him, and then on the eighth of March this incident uh, of, uh, 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 and then he goes to jail. Uh, just that
2: incident, it's it's twenty-three policemen die, is it in a, a police station is set on fire?
1: Correct, correct. So the numbers are disputed. Nineteen say some, twenty-three says some others. But nationalist protesters get into a fight with a crowd of policemen, burn the police station. And at this stage, the non-cooperation movement had been almost wholly non-violent. The scale of mass participation had absolutely unnerved the British. And it had brought the Raj down to its knees. And when Gandhi calls off the movement, the more younger members of uh, the Congress party, including Jawaharlal Nehru and Subhash Chandra Bose, are outraged because the movement is growing, is growing in power, in influence, uh, in dramatic intensity, and it does appear as if the British are succ- going to succumb. And Gandhi yet is so appalled by this one act of violence that, on uh, you know, on principle, he says no violence against the British or against Indian officials who work for the British. So he calls off the movement. He's, he gets a lot of opposition to that, doesn't he, from his own, from his own uh, party and from his own Congress party, because it appears as if independence is around the corner, and the British are going to grant self-rule because they are so disconcerted and surprised and threatened by the major uh, kind of popular upsurge against their rule. But Gandhi, because of his commitment to non-violence, calls off the movement and shortly after that is arrested.
2: The charges, I think, were sedition, uh, which was probably a general allegation, wasn't it, in relation to his uh, non-cooperation movement, but also to articles that he'd written in the Young India paper, which you you referred to earlier?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. So, and uh, that's it, that's it. So tell us about
2: this speech at the Great Trial. What sort of an address was it? What makes it so memorable?
1: Well, uh, two things. One uh, is, of course, that it's... uh, he reiterates his principled commitment to nonviolence. Uh, but more importantly, it's a speech that rehearses the entire arc of his relations with the British Empire. So he talks about when Gandhi, Gandhi talks about the time he was in South Africa, where he fervently believed in the good intentions of the British Empire. Uh, to go back a little, in 1857, there was a major uprising called uh, the Indian Mutiny by some and the First War of Indian Independence by others against the British Raj. Following this uprising, which was crushed by uh, uh, the army, India goes goes from the control of the in East India Company into the control of the crown. And Queen Victoria becomes the Empress of India. And she issues a famous pro- proclamation where she says, under my rule, every Indian will have equal rights. There will be no discrimination against Indians. And Gandhi believes in the sincerity of this proclamation. He is someone who believes that the British will uphold in India and in South Africa and in all other colonies their ideals of fair play, justice, honor, decency and so on. So in this speech he talks about, at some length he describes how he uh, got disenchanted, dis- disillusioned with his belief in the benevolence of British imperial rule. He talks about how... During the Boer War in South Africa in 1899, he took the side of the British. He raised an ambulance corps, attending to the wounded. He did the same in 1906 when there was a major battle between the Zulus and the British. He talks about coming back to India and helping with the first war effort of accepting a British medal. And then he says that the Rollet Act and uh, uh, particularly... The massacre in the Punjab in 1919, the notorious Jalyan massacre in April 1919, when a British a brigadier uh, ordered firing on an unarmed crowd, killing 400. And the British brigadier really wasn't really punished seriously. He talks about that really, those incidents totally opened his eyes. And he no longer believed in the justice of British rule and thought that rather than get Fair treatment within the Empire, as he had once hoped, India must be become independent. And to quote from the speech he says, I came reluctantly to the conclusion, that is over a twenty year period, I came reluctantly to the conclusion that the British connection had made India more helpless than she ever was before, politically and economically. So this is extraordinary.
2: It's extraordinary stuff. So he's throwing himself really in front of the court, um, absolutely saying I'm guilty and I'm proud of it. And he he just keeps going hard, doesn't he, on this front?
1: Yes, yes, yes. In fact, this is very, very. This was true South Africa too. Whenever he was arrested for breaking a law, he regarded a law as unjust. For example, a law prohibiting Indians from uh, you know crossing provisional boundaries, or prohibiting Indians from living in white areas. He and his colleagues would break the law which would consider unjust law and plead guilty. They would never say, uh, you know, that is sort of uh, standard practice for Gandhi. He would break a law non-violently and plead guilty. And in this case, of course, use the court to make a major statement of his political views and uh, outlining in detail why <coughs> having once so deeply and fervently believed in the British promise of justice, he saw, no, saw, saw that the only hope the only redemption for India was outside the British Empire.
2: And he even said that he was proud to be charged with some of these expressions of discontent because um, he was joining other patriots who'd been
1: charged under the same provisions. Indeed. I mean, uh, he doesn't mention the names of the patriots, but there was one particularly remarkable patriot called Bal Gangadhar Tilak, who was a great, lo- like Gandhi, a lawyer, a writer, an activist from Pune, who had been... Uh, uh, sentenced under the sedition clause for six years and had gone to jail in in Mandalay in Burma for six years. So Gandhi admired uh, patriots like that.
2: And Tilak's speech when he founded the Home Rule Society, we've got that one up on SpeakOla as well, if people want to track that one down. So he delivers this statement, uh, and then perhaps even as famous as Gandhi's speech is the speech of the judge
1: in response. Indeed. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary speech. I mean, it's... a. Uh, Gandhi is has broken the law I mean it's an obnoxious British law in which writing an article as Gandhi did makes uh, where you criticize the government makes you liable for sedition and you can get a term for six six years so the judge has to convict Gandhi judge Broomfield is his name he has to convict Gandhi but While saying, I have no option to find you guilty, he says, and these are wonderful words. I mean, they're very moving. Whenever I read them, and I've been reading them at regular intervals for the last 40 years, they never fail to move me. So a British judge, a British colonial judge, convicting Gandhi, uh, the self-declared enemy of the British Empire, to six years in jail, says, it would be impossible to ignore the fact that in the eyes of millions of your countrymen, you are a great patriot and a great leader. Even all those who differ from you in politics look up up to you as a man of high ideals and of noble and even saintly life. I have to deal with you in one character only. And that's, of course, breaking the law. So he says that I have to give you six years. He explains why he's given him six years simple imprisonment, uh, which is the same as which uh, uh, Tilak got. And then he ends, the judge ends by saying, if in the course, if the course of events in India should make it possible for government, the British government, to reduce the period and release you, nobody would be better pleased than I. Now, it's a profoundly moving statement by a judge who, according to the law as it then was, has to convict this man to six years, but recognizes that he will never uh, try anyone remotely like Gandhi, as great, as noble, as widely admired, and expresses the hope that the sentence that he's given will be radically reduced. I mean, I I'm not an expert on South African history, but it's unlikely, for example, that a South African judge sentencing Lancel Mandela in 1961 would have given a speech like this. It's a
2: beautiful speech. Um, and it's, it's more beautiful than it was reflected in the Richard Attenborough film, uh, where they did show the, the detail that the judge stood up for Gandhi. But the beauty of the words is
1: just it stood, they're incredible. It, it is indeed. And I, I say this, you know, my, my biography, which uh, you referred to, Tony, you know, it's 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 a scholar's work. Uh, so it's based on uh, my documentation, my research and the narrative. Uh, I keep myself out of the narrative. But this is one of the few places in the book where I put myself in. I say that I first read this speech 30 years ago and I find it as moving now as as I did uh, well when, when I first read it uh, as, as a young student. So it's an extraordinary speech. And what wishes one knew more about Judge Broomfield? I mean, there's a there's a snippet in my in, in my book which is kind of rather curious. Where uh, it's a snippet from his diary where he says on that day he says, "Morning, play golf. After breakfast, try Gandhi." <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> so it's kind of uh, you are know, kind of like detached. Uh, uh, almost emotionally suppressed British kind of way, right? Play golf, <laughs> yeah. have breakfast, try Gandhi. No, it's it's lovely. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. How long did Gandhi serve? So Gandhi uh, was jailed in 1922, and he fell well. Uh, he fell seriously ill in uh, in jail in 1924, in February 1924. To about two years later, he almost died of appendicitis. He was rescued from almost certain death by a British surgeon called Colonel Maddox, who operated on him uh, in the Pune General Hospital. The electricity went off, so he had to operate on Gandhi uh, through a lantern and and candlelight. And he saved his life, but Gandhi was, you know, almost at death's bed, and that's when the British released him, because he almost died.
2: The thing that struck me was how hard life was in prison, that he was there and he could only see family members once a month. It was... it's. The impression from the judge's speech is that there was a respect for Gandhi, and I thought he might be kind of treated as a treasured prisoner. But it it was a difficult life.
1: It was, it was, and I think that's what makes the judge so special. He was an aberration. I mean, he was someone. I mean, most British, uh, most British rulers in India, officials in India, saw Gandhi as a nuisance, a troublemaker, a lawbreaker, as someone who had made their, you know, rather peaceful and orderly rule uh, more troublesome. Yeah, jail life was difficult. It, by the way, it still is in India. I mean, I must say something. Uh, sadly, uh, the conditions of Indian jails today is not be- much better than they were under the British rule. I mean, it's, it's still pretty awful.
2: Ram, you got arrested the other day. Did you go into okay. jail?
1: Well, well, I was arrested just for the day. So I wasn't convicted. I was detained to because uh, I for part of a protest. And with about a few hundred people, I was sent to uh, a detention center. And then I was released. There uh, was a major popular outcry all over. And, you know, I and everyone else was released late in the day. But I, I've had friends in jail, uh, like Gandhi, principal non-violent protesters who've been jailed uh, by the Indian authorities, and they tell me that conditioned Indian jails are uh, no better than they were when the British were here, which is tragically true.
2: Well, we're coming to the end of the great trial. Maybe tell us, why were you protesting? What's the, the current day issue that, um, that you were in the streets about?
1: Tony... Uh, you know, uh, Gandhi had four abiding beliefs, political beliefs. One was nonviolence, which is that if you feel something is unjust, you protest, but do so nonviolently. This is, of course, shared by Martin Luther King and the Dalai Lama and others. The second was Hindu-Muslim harmony, that India's two major religions must live in peace and brotherhood. The third was the abolition of untouchability, which disfigures in the Indian social order. We have a very uh, unequal caste system in which the lower caste were treated as almost untouchables. And Gandhi opposed that all his life. And the fourth aspect of Gandhi's political credo was economic self-reliance. Now, the second second part of Gandhi's political credo, Hindu-Muslim harmony, has come under grievous threat in India over the last... 10 or 15 years and particularly since Narendra Modi became prime minister in 2014 because Mr. Modi's government and his party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, is a Hindu supremacist party which believes that this must, India must become a Hindu theocratic state in which Hindus are first class citizens and Muslims particularly and sometimes even Christians are second class citizens. Now, this is uh, uh, not totally the Indian constitution. And Mr. Modi and his party are waiting for the time when they'll have a two-thirds majority in the Indian parliament to to amend the constitution, to make this a Hindu theocratic state. On the way, last year, in 2019, they enacted a law ostensibly to give refuge, uh, uh, to give succor to refugees fleeing persecution in different countries adjoining India. And it said, anyone but a Muslim can get refuge in India. So it was blatantly discriminatory law, discriminating against Muslims. And like many other Indians, outraged. Many Indians were outraged because it was just because it was so unjust and unfair. Some some uh, outraged because they felt further that it violated the spirit of Gandhi who built this country. And it was in protest against that law uh, that I came out on the streets and was detained. I was holding up actually a, a poster of Gandhi at the time.
2: Well, we'll return to Gandhi now. As I said, there are four major speeches of his political career that we're going to touch on, and it brings us to the third one, the one on the eve of the Salt March in 1930. Can you tell us about Salt
1: and what was going on in 1930? The major political party in India then was the Indian National Congress, of which Gandhi was part, and. So there was uh, in 1920, uh, there was a non-cooperation movement which ended in 1922 with Gandhi's arrest and the incidents of violence at Chauri Chora. A few years of uh, political, uh, you could say, an absence of political conflict followed. In the late 1920s, the nationalist movement mobilized again for a fresh round of struggle. They uh, prepared a report called the Nehru Report asking for dominion status, which was refused by the British. Um, The the Congress said, give us at least the rights that the Australians have. And that was refused. And in 1929, in December 1929, Jawaharlal Nehru, the young charismatic disciple of Gandhi, was elected president of the Indian National Congress. And at the annual meeting in the city of Lahore, which is now in Pakistan, the Congress decided that they would fight for complete independence. And Gandhi was given the freedom to design how they would fight for it. And of course, they would fight nonviolently and in no other way. But Gandhi spent January thinking of what he would do in his ashram in Ahmedabad. And he came up with this beautiful tactical protest, which was to break the salt law. Now, salt is an item uh, in every Indian's diet. And yet salt was a state monopoly. Only the government couldn't manufacture and sell salt. So Gandhi said, I will break the salt law. I will march from Ahmedabad, where my ashram was, to the sea, which is, you know, Kind of a three day three week march, and I will break the law. And he announced that this is what he would do. And uh, while he was breaking the, the salt law in Gujarat, other Indians were to break the salt law and illegally make salt in different parts of India, either in inland lakes or in you know different parts of uh, uh, to go to the sea and so on. So that's what the idea was. And on the 11th of March, the day before he left his ashram, he made a speech. Now We can talk about this later after we talk about the speech. But Gandhi fully expected to be arrested. He did not think the British would allow him to make the three-week trek to the sea to break the salt law. And the speech reflects this. The possibility, indeed, the likelihood of Gandhi being arrested. He starts with those words, doesn't he, saying that... uh... In all probability, this will be my last speech to you. Even if the government allows me to march tomorrow morning, this will be my last speech on the sacred banks of the Sabarmati, possibly these may be the last words of my life here. What this means is, in 1917, Gandhi established an ashram uh, in Ahmedabad, on the banks of the Sabarmati river. And in 1930, he resolved that whatever happened in the salt march, he would not come back to that ashram. So he says, this is my last speech uh, here uh, on the banks of the Sabarmati. But he fully anticipated arrest, which actually did not happen. may have been a major mistake by the British Viceroy not to arrest him.
2: Well, that's right. It becomes a three-week caravan, doesn't it, of publicity and garnering of support.
1: Absolutely. So day by day, Gandhi goes, gathers more support, gives speeches. The speeches are covered by the Indian press. The foreign press comes. Uh, You know, movie cameras uh, follow him. People like Jawaharlal Nehru, Vallabhai Patel, you know, the other great national leaders are involved. They, some of them get arrested. Gandhi does not get arrested. And the Viceroy in Delhi, Lord Irwin, is mystified and does not know what to do. And in the course of my research, I discovered that uh, uh, he uh, pours out his confusion to his spiritual preceptor, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's sitting in England. And from Delhi, he writes to him, Irvin writes to him, says, what do I do with this guy? He's marching. Does he think he's Jesus? <laughs> Jesus with a donkey? Should I arrest him? Should I let him go? you know so he's totally puzzled by this gesture i mean it was a, I mean, it was like um, a spectacular political theater that that master
2: is there any chance that the that he marched with a pony in order to <laughs> yeah. recreate that image of jesus not,
1: uh, and the donkey not at all not, not, not at all i mean gandhi no knew, gandhi, at all. Gandhi, okay. gandhi knew uh, you know uh, the life of jesus very well but not at all not at all in terms of the speech if we return
2: to that um, yeah. he he manages to be as you say he goes back to his commitment to non-violence let no one commit a wrong in anger but he is also quite combative isn't he in terms of the disobedience that he's anticipating because he doesn't just anticipate salt and disobedience he's anticipating a wider disobedience
1: yeah so just let me read out a few few few, few lines he says The history of the world is full of instances of men who rose to leadership uh, by sheer force of self-confidence, bravery and tenacity. We too, if we sincerely aspire to swaraj, which is freedom, uh, and are impatient to attain it, should have similar self-confidence. Our ranks will swell and our hearts strengthen as the numbers of our arrests by the government increases. Much can be done in many other ways too. The liquor in foreign cloth shops can be picketed. We can refuse to pay taxes. The lawyers can give up practice. The public can boycott the law courts. Government servants can resign their posts. So he's talking about a major upheaval uh, where all patriotic Indians are urged to join the struggle for freedom by sacrificing. uh, By sacrificing their jobs, by not going to law courts, by not wearing foreign clothes. And then he also says, There are women who can stand shoulder to shoulder with men in this struggle. Now, I think I'd like to say a little bit about women in the freedom movement, uh, uh, Tony, if I may. Yeah. Now, India in the 1920s is a deeply, deeply conservative society. Much more so than Australia or England in the 1920s. Men and women uh, who are unrelated do not talk, cannot converse, do not go to the same schools, cannot cultivate friendships. Women are virtually not in public life. There are no women doctors, lawyers, dentists, teachers. So it's a deeply conservative society in which the place of women is in the home. And yet Gandhi is able to get women into the freedom movement. In 1924, Gandhi comes out of jail, as I've related. That year, he says, we must have a female president of the Indian National Congress. He finally succeeds the next year, 1925, Sarojini Naidu, who was a a well-educated writer and poet, becomes president of the Indian National Congress. Now, just, just think of this. In one of the most conservative patriarchal societies of the world, in 1925, the president of the major political party is a female, which would be inconceivable in England, Australia, America, and so on and so forth. Because Gandhi is committed to gender equality and to the participation of women in the freedom struggle. At the same time, he is deeply conscious of the conservative, hidebound nature of his own society. So, at first, he does not want women to participate in the salt march. He says, while we are marching to the sea, breaking the salt Law," he tells the women in the Congress, you uh, picket liquor stills because you know, Gandhi is opposed to uh, alcoholism. Uh, but one remarkable Indian feminist, Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay, who's an extraordinary figure. Uh, I wish we could find a speech of hers you know, pioneering feminist, socialist, uh, trade union worker and so on, tells Gandhi, you cannot keep us out of this movement. I'm going to break the salt law too. So women also joined the movement. Now, uh, and in, the, in, a, in a deeply conservative religious society, women's participation, however modest it was in numbers, clearly the men were there in much greater numbers, is I think very, very important to understand the future evolution of uh, of Indian democracy. The fact that when India becomes independent, Uh, We have universal adult franchise in which everyone gets the vote, not just the men. Right. So Gandhi, in his personal life, uh, in his religious views could be somewhat conservative. You know, his wife was a homemaker. Uh, His daughters-in-law did not work outside the home. But he recognized the power of women to shape society and to mold public opinion. And he brought women into the political movement in a way in which, you know, many of his contemporaries didn't. I mean, one can't think of Churchill, for example, did not really was not really enthusiastic about women in British politics. There were no women in Mao's Communist Party, for example, and and this is an aspect of Gandhi's contribution to public life, seeking to bring women into politics. Uh, that the Salt March also exemplifies. He fi- he finishes off the speech
2: with, I guess, almost a, a martyr bit, where you get the sense that Gandhi believes he can die at any point. They're, they're quite moving words, really.
1: Yes, I mean, he, uh, uh, he says, I believe there are men in India to complete the work begun by me and, you know, and, and so on and so, so forth. Now, Gandhi knew very early on, or not knew, sensed very early on that he may have to die for his views. Uh, there were several assassination attempts on his life before the final one that succeeded in 1948. There were at least two in South Africa, and two more in India. And after the first attempt on his life in South Africa, he says, I may have to die for my views, but if in the course of my dying, I, my death brings about unity between Hindus and Muslims, I'll be well satisfied. So he had a sort of premonition of being meeting a bloody uh, and,
2: uh, end. So the speech was delivered on the eve of the Salt March, and he, he went on this three-week odyssey. Can you tell us what happened when Gandhi got to the sea?
1: So when Gandhi got to the sea, he was uh, shortly afterwards he was arrested. But the breaking of the salt law continued by other nationalists in different parts of India. Gandhi was jailed in uh, uh, in Pune, where he'd been for the first time. Uh, he, then after about um, almost a year in jail, he was about eight eight months. He was released. Uh, there were talks with the viceroy in uh, in Delhi, and then later in the year, he was Gandhi went to participate in a roundtable conference in London, an aborted conference which didn't really lead to any resolution. Uh, with regard to India's freedom, but is a lovely phase in Gandhi's life because Gandhi was uh, in London in the 1880s as a student and he returns 40 years later, makes his home in the East End, absolutely charms the British public, befriends uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, George Bernard Shaw, and, you know, there's a chapter in my book called At Home in London because he was really at home in London and one of of the aspects of Gandhi's, uh, quite extraordinary aspects of Gandhi's worldview at which we may talk about because it's reflected in his 1942 speech too, is while fighting British imperialism, Gandhi never had any ill will for the British people. There were many aspects of British culture he admired. Uh, The architecture of London, for example, their sense of moderation, their sense of humor, which he uh, made his own. I mean, he had a kind of self-deprecatory form of humor, which is totally foreign to India. I mean, Indians don't have that kind of humor. His friendships, I mean, his friendships with Quakers, with British priests, with British writers... And uh, uh, though that conference failed, that conference um, that he attended after the Salt March failed, I think he left behind a reservoir of goodwill among the British public that is an important reason why our relations, India and Britain, our relations remain quite good even now.
2: Well, the fourth speech to talk about on the podcast is the Quit India speech. Now, this one, I guess, is almost a a harbinger to the last phase of Gandhi's career. Can you talk about the Quit India speech and the Quit India movement?
1: Yeah, so uh, in 1939, well, uh, just, just to give, uh, go back a little, little bit. In 1937, their elections under limited franchise, so the British have uh, belatedly recognised that they have to give Indians more power, And there's a hope that one day they will be dominion status. So the elections in 1937, in which Indian uh, governments run by Indians come to power across India, in seven of the nine provinces of British India, the Congress Party, Gandhi's Congress Party is in power uh, from 1937 onwards. In 1939, the war breaks out uh, in Europe. And when the war breaks out in Europe, Gandhi and the Congress tell the British, we will join the war effort and Gandhi says, I'm willing to not insist on non-violence, we will join the war effort on condition that you give us independence once the war is ended. Now, this, this would be, of course, a test of British sincerity, because if in, uh, the British claim that they were fighting the war for democracy and freedom in opposition to the totalitarian uh, regime of Hitler, and if they indeed believed in democracy and freedom, they must grant democracy to their own colonized people in Asia and Africa. So, in 1939, Gandhi and the Congress tell the Viceroy that we will join the war effort. If you say once the war ends, we'll give you freedom. Uh, the Viceroy is a particularly reactionary, old crusty Scotsman called Lilith Go. He doesn't understand the justice of this demand. Nothing happens. Uh, then the Labour Party in Britain, which is committed to Indian independence, joins Churchill's government. They send uh, emissary Staff, Staff, Stafford Cripps in 1942 to break the deadlock. But Yet, Churchill, who is an absolutely reactionary man as Prime Minister, and Lilith Go, who is an absolutely reactionary man as Viceroy, cannot see the justice of what the Congress are asking them, which is just simple, which simply to say, if you are fighting the war to protect democracy and freedom, how can you deny democracy and freedom to Indians, to Nigerians, to Ghanaians, to Burmans, to Kenyans and so on? And we are happy to assist you because we know Hitler is evil. In fact... Jawaharlal Nehru uh, recognized the dangers of Hitler's Nazism well before Churchill did. From the early 30s, he was writing about how awful the Nazis were. But since the British do not yield, Gandhi is forced, after three years of persuasion, getting gets him nowhere. Gandhi is forced to launch a final struggle, non-violent struggle against the British called the Quit India Movement in August 1942 in Bombay. And the last speech Last political speech we're discussing is the one that he made at this Congress meeting. So tell us about the
2: speech. It starts off with a statement that he's the same Gandhi that they knew in 1920, that nonviolence is still at the core. Um, where does he go from there?
1: Well, uh, he talks, the first part of the speech talks about his commitment to nonviolence and says, for example, here's a lovely line <coughs> a nonviolent soldier of freedom will covet nothing for himself. He fights only for the freedom of his country. So it's it's, more mat- it's animated by struggle, and animated by idealism, sacrifice. Then he comes to uh, why Hindus and Muslims be together. And then he comes to his attitude towards the British. And he says that we must not hate the British. We must distinguish between British imperialism and the British people. The proposal... Uh, for the withdrawal, of the British part does not come out of anger. For our quarrel is not with the British people; our quarrel is with their imperialism. As a matter of fact, I feel myself to be a greater friend of the British now than ever before. Now, uh, I just—if I may—if I may add a personal. Uh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Tony. I
2: was going to say it, the the wording of that speech. It's it's quite conciliatory and and seemingly not overly seditious, given you say that this is the sort of thing he would have been saying behind closed doors to Churchill and others for three or four years. Uh, it's quite surprising how badly this goes down. I mean, he's, he's arrested
1: straight away again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's arrested and he's sent off to a jail in Pune along with his close colleagues. And he's there for the next a little less than two years and his wife dies in jail, as does his great secretary, Mahadev Desai. Uh, But what I wanted to just say a little bit about uh, his, this extraordinary distinction he makes between opposition to British imperialism and love for the British people and an absence of rancor or hatred or bitterness towards the British people. Now, as I said, Gandhi had many British friends. One of them was a great, extraordinary British priest called Charles Freer Andrews, who was arguably Gandhi's closest friend. He met him in South Africa in 1915. They stayed in touch for a very long time. Andrews did remarkable work in ending the system of indentured labor in Fiji and the Caribbean and in South Africa. He died in Calcutta in 1940. He's buried there. And whenever I go to Calcutta, I go to Andrews' grave. And I don't know whether you've been to Calcutta, Tony, but some of your listeners would have. Calcutta? I have been there. You have been there. Yeah, nice. nice Yeah, Yeah. I was
2: there for the final frontier test in uh, 2001.
1: Right. So you know Calcutta. (laughs) Calcutta, yeah. Calcutta was the second great city of empire after London. You know, it was the capital of the British Raj for almost 150 years. And it's a great imperial city. Many white people were there. Many of them died there. I don't know whether you went uh, to the most famous Christian cemetery in Calcutta, which is the Park Street Cemetery, in which uh, relatives of William Thackeray, the great Sanskrit scholar, William Jones, generals, governors are buried. It's a famous British cemetery. Right. Now, Andrews refused to be buried there. He was buried across the road in a cemetery for Indian Christians. He wanted to be buried with Indians. And I, every time I go to Calcutta, I go to Andrews' grave. Because he was Gandhi's closest friend. Shortly before he died, this English Christian priest, who incidentally taught in my old college, St. Stephen's College in Delhi, which is another reason I'm particularly attached to him. Shortly before, when when Gandhi knew Andrews was dying in 1940, he went across the subcontinent uh, to see him in Calcutta on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, Andrew said, Mohan, which is what he called him, his first name Mohandas. Das, Mohan, I see Swaraj is coming. Those were almost his last words. So one of the most moving aspects of Gandhi's struggle is that this remarkable, principled, moral distinction he makes between imperialism as a system and ordinary British people who... Should not be confused with that system, and I think this is—it's tragic. If, you know, I say in my book, if anyone else that apart from Lilith Go had been viceroy. In fact, I say by the way, by the way, this is since I'm speaking to you in Melbourne. Later in my book, uh, Tony, in 194, after Gandhi comes out of jail in 1944 and in 1945 he goes to Calcutta, I have several pages on the deep friendship he cultivated with an Australian called R.G. Casey, who was governor of Bengal and much later became foreign minister of your country. And I say in, in those pages, if R.G. Casey had been viceroy of India instead of Lilith Go, because Casey was compassionate, understanding, non-racial, not at all arrogant, admired Gandhi, saw Gandhi's significance. If R.G. Casey had been viceroy of India in 1939 instead of Lilith Go, the whole thing would have ended much better. There may have been no partition, no bloody riots, and there'd have been a peaceful transition to independence. So it's so important to have the right man uh, in a position of power. I mean, again, one of the reasons that if if Richard Nixon had been president of the United States in 1964, 65, 66, uh, instead of Lyndon Johnson, you would not have had the Civil Rights Act. In understanding social change, I mean, this is something which radicals sometimes don't understand, Tony. You know, young radicals. Uh, always who look at protest and exalt great dissident leaders. But many great dissident leaders, uh, however great they are, unless they find a voice, unless the ruler, the person in power, has some conscience, some morality, social change does not take place. The person I admire the most in the world today is the Dalai Lama. But the Dalai Lama has failed not because of any fault or failing of his own, but because he's against the most brutal, barbaric authoritarian regime of the 20th and the 21st century, right? And, and I think uh, Gandhi, uh, Gandhi and the, I mean, the British also often listen to Gandhi. I mean, George Orwell says this. He says, you can embarrass the British, you can shame them. Could you embarrass Hitler? Who knows? Ho Chi Minh, who fought violently against French imperialism, is supposed to have said, if Mahatma Gandhi had been fighting the French, he would have given up non-violence within a week. <laughs> All right. Now, yeah. so I think the aspects to Gandhi's relationship with the British, which are, the, to my mind, including the speech that of the judge which we discussed some time ago, are some of the most endearing, moving aspects of his life and work, that it was not all black and white.
2: So from quit India, it leads to eventually partition and independence and the assassination of Gandhi. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, To go, I think I have to go back a little to the 1920s. In The 1920s, as I explained, in the non-cooperation movement, Hindus and Muslims worked and fought shoulder to shoulder. In the salt march of the 1930s, it was a largely Hindu movement with only a few Muslim followers of Gandhi participating. From the late 30s, a political rift between Muslims and Hindus emerged in India. Uh, Gandhi's great rival, the brilliant... Uh, focused, ambitious lawyer, M.A. Jinnah, had taken over the Muslim League Party and committed the Muslim League to an independent nation of Pakistan. One of the, uh, one could say, incidental, unanticipated byproducts of the Queen India Movement was that Gandhi was jailed in 1942. Between 1942 and 1945, the Congress Party and all its cadres committed to Hindu-Muslim harmony were in jail. And while they were in jail, Jinnah was out of jail mobilizing the Muslim League, recruiting thousands of young men, virtually all men, to his ideal of a homeland for Muslims only. So the polarization between Hindus and Muslims grew in the 1940s. In the 1920s and part of the 1930s, the Congress Party uh, commanded a large share of the Hindu vote and a very la- fairly large share of the Muslim vote as well. But by the 1940s, more and more Muslims were flocking to the Muslim League. In 1946, in 1945, the war ended. Churchill was defeated in England. A Labor Party came, uh, the Labour Party came to power. Clement Attlee, the new Prime Minister, unlike Churchill, was absolutely committed to Indian independence. He organized fresh elections in 1946, in which the Muslim League swept the seats, the reserved seats meant for Muslim voters. And by this time, partition was more or less inevitable. The polar, polarization had happened uh, quite dramatically. Part, this is my view that by 1946, partition was inevitable. That, but it could have been handled very differently. In early 1947, a new Viceroy was appointed, Lord Mountbatten, who was in a big rush, uh, who wanted uh, publicity for himself and did not really think of the consequences of a rushed partition. He should have phased out partition, given people time, given the army time, divided the administrative services of India and Pakistan in a more systematic and organized way, instead of which, in a few months, he just chopped up the country, and this led to bloody violence uh, and rioting between Hindus and Muslims and the flight of almost 10 million refugees on both sides, Hindus and Musl- Hindus and Sikhs coming from Pakistan into India and Muslims coming from India into Pakistan. And in this context of awful civil war, Gandhi uh, decides to go on a pilgrimage for peace in eastern Bengal, followed by a fast for peace in Calcutta, another fast for peace in Delhi, both of which are successful. His fast for peace in Calcutta and Delhi, single-handedly restore social harmony and religious peace in these riot-torn cities. And his last fast in Delhi is in the second week of January 1948. And the Hindu right-wing is really angry with him because they want retribution against Muslims. They want to purge all the Muslims out of India uh, and Gandhi is absolutely opposed to that because Gandhi says, Gandhi and Nehru following him say, even if Pakistan treats its Hindu and Sikh minorities badly, we will give our Muslim minority equal rights. And this is anathema to the Hindu right wing and it's a member of the Hindu right wing, Godse, who murders Gandhi on the 30th of January 1948.
2: The Godzi character is inter- very interesting to me because I believe his speech isn't published in India. It's the speech he gave at his trial and it's the rantings of a right-wing nationalist. And he, this speech is one that is very popular on SpeakOla. A lot of people rally to this speech and leave quite offensive comments about Godsey as a, as a patriot and, and not as a terrorist or murderer. Who was this man and what is going on at the moment with Godsey and, uh, yeah. and the reactions I'm getting?
1: So first, first a correction, uh, Tony. The speech is available. It was banned for some years after his death, but it's been unbanned for a long time. You can buy books that publish it, including books called Great Speeches of Modern India with God Speech. So it's available widely in India. He was a young radical from Pune and Western India, part of the Rashtriya Swayam Sangh, which is still a very influential organization in India, which he left uh, after several years in the RSS. He left it because he felt it wasn't radical enough for his taste. And uh, he felt that Gandhi had been too soft on the Muslims. I mean, he came from the same worldview as the RSS and the BJP, which is in power today, which is that India is a land for Hindus. It's it, Hindus are here by right. Everyone else is here by sufferance. You know, uh, Ghotse's great uh, uh, mentor was a man called v, V.D. Savarkar, whom Gandhi argued with. And V.D. Savarkar's, made this notorious distinction, famous and notorious distinction, between the place you are born or the soil on which you are born and the soil on which your holy temple is. So, a Muslim in India is born in India, but his holy shrine is in Mecca, which is not in India. A Catholic of Indian origin is born in India, but his shrine is in the Vatican, which is not in India. So, Samarkar said, anyone whose faith uh, prescribes them to pray to a shrine not between the geographical or territorial boundaries of India, is ipso facto disloyal unless proved otherwise. He is guilty of disloyalty, of lack of patriotism, unless proved otherwise. So, that's the kind of pernicious uh, ideology that Savarkar had, which Goethe shared, and which the, those who rule India today, Narendra Modi and Amit Shah and their party, absolutely... Believe secretly whatever they may say in public; they believe it. Their actions show it. Their laws, including the Citizenship Amendment Act I talked about, show it. And Godse was really angry with Gandhi for fasting in Delhi so that the Muslims in Delhi would be safe. So it's
2: bigotry, really, yes. that causes people to rally to this speech. It's Has pure, it
1: become a pure and simple bigotry? Pure and simple bigotry, hate, hatred of Muslims, bigotry, and this absurd fantasy that. Uh, which is totally contrary to uh, what's happening around the world. Absurd fantasy that the more Hindu India becomes, the more powerful, the more economically prosperous, the greater, the more it's influence in world affairs, which is complete nonsense. But they believe that. They believe that to be a great country, you have to be dogmatically and uh, proudly Hindu.
2: And what would Gandhi think of the current atmosphere in India?
1: Well, uh, there's a lovely story, which I'll tell you about this. Uh, which is a friend of mine likes to relate. You know, Gandhi went to England in uh, 1931 for the round table conference. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was asked, uh, what do you think of modern civilization? And he said, I think it would be a good idea. Now, if someone asks him today, what do you think of Indian civilization? He would say, I think that would be a good idea too. Right Now, I think he would be deeply upset by some of the things that are happening in India today, uh, particularly uh, the corruption, the violence, the bigotry. Uh, the hate speech, and above all, the demonization of Muslims. You know, it may be, it may be, uh, Tony, uh, to quote another friend of mine, uh, that Gandhi will be revered around the world and forgotten in India. And there's a very honorable precedent for this. The Buddha was born in India, was sold out by Indians. Uh, Buddhism was exterminated in India in the centuries after the Buddha's death because the Buddha's challenge particularly to caste inequalities was too difficult for the Hindus to stomach, and Buddh- Buddhism flourished elsewhere, and that might happen with Gandhi too, that the land of his birth might metaphorically throw him out, but his ideas, his example, his, uh, will provide inspiration to movements and individuals across the world. Even if India forgets him, the world will own him.
2: Is there any moderate backlash to the strengthening of the, the Hindu theocracy in India? Is there a sense that they're overstepping and that there may be a correction?
1: Not yet, not yet. And the, the principal reason for the fact that there is no moderate backlash is that the principal opposition party, the Congress to which Gandhi once belonged, has become the property of a family firm, Nehru's descendants. I mean, Nehru himself would not have approved. But Sonia Gandhi, who is Nehru's granddaughter-in-law and her children, have a tight monopoly of the Congress party. They are incompetent, nepotistic, fifth-generation dynasts, And as long as they are leading India's major opposition party... God help India. And of course, uh, as long as they're leading India's major opposition party, the Hindu right wings uh, will be politically robust and strong. You know, they should, and they are as in Rahul Gandhi, who is uh, the heir apparent, who's fought two elections miserably and is a well-meaning, lazy, incompetent fellow, is very much like Jeremy Corbyn. You know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was holding back the Labour Party. As soon as the Labour Party summed up the courage to kick out Jeremy Corbyn, elect a new better leader, you can see Labour's in, every while in the United Kingdom. So unless the Gandhi family goes, and they're not going, they're not going partly because they control the purse strings of the con- of the Congress party. But to go back to something I said a little earlier, just as progressive, positive social change happens only when popular groundswell from below is met with some kind of understanding and tolerance from above. In the same way, authoritarianism flourishes partly because of bigotry and uh, the sheer kind of uh, motive force of hatred of those who promote authoritarianism, but also because those who oppose authoritarianism are so weak, so pusillanimous and so compromised. And the Indian Congress Party today is all of the above. So they enable Narendra Modi and the BJP to stay in power. While we're talking about
2: bigotry, could you respond to recent stories about Gandhi's racism as a young man, um, his views on blacks in South Africa and a sense maybe that he didn't drag uh, black people with him in, in the movement.
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, Gandhi, there are 90 volumes of Gandhi's works and it's very easy to quote stuff out of context. The greatness of Gandhi is that he was always growing, always maturing, always moving towards a more open-minded, more progressive, more tolerant, more humane, more just position. As a young man, he was a racist in the 1890s, like many Indians were and still are. He was shaped by the worldview of India. He was a racist. He believed in the hierarchy of civilizations in which Europeans were on top, Indians next and Africans at the bottom. The longer he lived in South Africa, the longer he outgrew his racism. Uh, He talks in a speech of 1908, which these angry radicals will never quote, that every, every race will gain emancipation and participate in the contribution of Uh, you know, the glories of humanity. His journal Indian opinion often talked about discrimination against Africans. African leaders themselves, like Lord John Doom, the first president of the African National Congress, was a friend of Gandhi. At that stage, there was no question of the African movement and the Indian movement coming together at all. So Gandhi is a racist as a young man. In his time in South Africa, he moves towards a non-racial position After he comes back in 1915 and steadily till his death in 1948, for three decades, he's a principled anti-racist. In all that he says, does and inspires. In the 1920s, he's in conversation with the great W.E.B. Du Bois, the great African-American leader. In the 1930s, Howard Thurman, who was a mentor of uh, Martin Luther King, comes to meet Gandhi, is inspired by him. Gandhi's writings in the 30s and 40s consistently talk about All the races of the world, the Indians and the Africans working together, shoulder to shoulder to end imperialism. And uh, and so there are many more examples. I mean, the leader of the African National Congress come to visit him. Uh, Black preachers from North America come to visit him. There's a beautiful conversation in 1946 between Gandhi and African-American soldiers who are in the American army in India in 1946. So for much of his life, he's a principled anti-racism. The greatness of Gandhi is that he outgrows his youthful prejudices, unlike most of us. And this is an ideological, motivated, ill-informed, tragic attack to tarnish Gandhi's legacy. Yes, he was a racist, when he was a young man. You know, I often say, Tony, many of us have prejudices and all of us have prejudices when we're young. Many of us don't outgrow them. When I was young, for a very long time, I was homophobic. I was brought up in a patriarchal heterosexual culture to disparage gay people. It took me quite a long time to outgrow it. Right. I was also patriarchal, I was not respectful, you know, that so at Gandhi's greatness when it comes to race, when it comes to caste, when it comes to gender, is that he's growing all the time. And for the last thirty years of his life, he is a consistent anti racist in all that he says, does and inspires. People who make this accusation against Gandhi should read the writings of Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was the man who brought Gandhi to Martin Luther King. Howard Thurman and his wife go to see Gandhi in his ashram in the 1930s. They should just read those conversations. And when they are leaving, Gandhi says, please sing me a song, a spiritual. And then he says, the unadulterated message of nonviolence will reach the world through you, through you African-Americans. This is the kind of stuff that is suppressed in these tendentious, pernicious attacks on Gandhi today. Whether they're suppressed out of ignorance or malevolence, I can't say. But they are suppressed. The record is very clear. To your listeners, I urge them to read a comprehensive account of Gandhi and race by the Indian writer Anil Noria. A-N-I-L-N-A-U-R-I-Y-A. It's called The African Element in Gandhi by Anil Noria. It's up on the net. I tweeted it a few days ago. They can go to to my Twitter headline and just read the truth about Gandhi and race.
2: I did see that on the Twitter feed. Raman, I highly recommend it as well. Um, I thought we've only got one English recording of Gandhi's voice and it relates to a speech he delivered in Oxford in 1931 on God. Can you tell us about this speech? We might even be able to play the audio at the end. It's one thing we try to do on the podcast is to finish with an actual speech. Tell us about the Oxford speech about religion?
1: So, uh, rather than speak to the speech, the speech is, I mean, it would be very nice to hear his voice, and uh, you should play to the end. But I wouldn't say in terms of content it's one of his best speeches. But uh, it does uh, not, it does uh, allow us to speak about Gandhi's views on religion. Now, Gandhi's views on religion are very interesting. Uh, He is not an atheist, so he believes... That faith in God, in the divine, answers to something very uh, deep and fundamental in the human condition. But nor is he a dogmatist. He does not believe in conversion. He believes that you are born, you accept the faith you are born into, Hindu or Christian or Buddhist or Islam, and seek to interpret it in the most progressive Catholic way. So non-violence and social justice, every faith. Christianity has elements which promote nonviolence, elements uh, in the scriptures that promote retribution. Christianity has elements which give women equal rights, elements which make women subordinate to women, so, as uh, subordinate to men. So, Gandhi would interpret his spiritual traditions in a way in which, which is most consistent with the modern era. And also, Gandhi was someone who, while deep, he, for example, he, he pioneered uh, the interfaith prayer meeting apart from going on fast for Hindu-Muslim harmony, every day in his ashram, he would have an open-air prayer meeting in which uh, songs from different religious traditions were uh, were sung. So he believed in cultivating intercultural, interfaith understanding. Uh, He believed no religion is true, no religion is false. All are a mixture of good and evil. And also above all, what is very, very interesting is that he believed like his mentor Tolstoy, that the kingdom of God is within you. A Christian need not take orders from the bishop. A Hindu must not need not practice all the rituals that go with his faith. You know, you found your own path to God. Gandhi, interestingly, never entered a temple. virtually never entered a temple in his entire life. Uh, And yet he was a deeply spiritual being. By the way, uh, again, I I don't want to emphasize too much uh, where you are based, Tony. But the best book on Gandhi's religion was written by an Australian scholar called JTF Jordan. It's called Gandhi's Religion, a Homespun Show. Uh, and it's a wonderful, detailed analysis of Gandhi's complex attitude to faith and religion. And those of you who want to follow this subject, uh, Gandhi and Religion, should read Jordan's book. What, what about the word
2: truth? That's one that gets used a lot as, as being maybe one of the, the more controversial aspects of his philosophy in the sense that it
1: was an extreme commitment to truth. And I guess... Uh, um, To truth and to transparency. So, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting that all his work... You know, the reason you know that Gandhi was a racist in his early life is because he said it in print and his editors have put it all uh, in his collected works without suppressing anything, right? Uh, The reason you know uh, about his views is that his ashram was open and his experiments in celibacy people wrote about... uh, He called his autobiography, The Story of My Experiments with Truth, which is a kind of very scientific title. So I think truth and transparency, I think, are very important aspects of of what he's trying to do. And he's consistently struggling. I mean, he's questioning, interrogating, talking about his own failures, his own weaknesses. And uh, uh, that's always a debate with himself about his own imperfections, physical, moral, spiritual, political.
2: And that was something, was it Nehru who said that he wouldn't want to be made into a saint, that he was a man with weaknesses? Someone, one of his close
1: uh, comrades said that. He himself joked about it. Once, Someone asked him, uh, Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, are you a saint trying to be a politician? And he said, no, I'm a politician trying to be a saint. So he once joked about it. Yeah, absolutely. He was a person with uh, enormous flaws, great achievements, and a truly human, uh, in that sense, very human. But his life was open and transparent. I mean, that's something which... Uh, not you can you can't really say that about most people in public life.
2: Well, Graham, um, thank you so much for giving us this time. You, I could listen to you all day, and indeed, I'm going to ask you one day to come back and tell me about Nehru's speeches, which we've got up on Speak Ola, and in fact, we've got so many Indian speeches up now. So, um, you mentioned Gokhale um, earlier on in the podcast, and Gokhale's uh, one of his speeches is up, and as well as well as a eulogy for Gokhale. Yeah. In 1916. Yeah. So, absolutely, I'd love to speak to you again. It's been just an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks, Tony. I've enjoyed
0: it
2: too, greatly, too. Speak, Well, there he is, Ramachandra Guha, speaking to me from Bangalore, or Bengaluru, as it's now known. Many thanks to cricket writer Gideon Haig, who's a good friend of Rahm's and put me in touch with him. Don't think the interview would have happened without you, Gideon. And like so many of Gideon's cricket books, Rahm's cricket book is a classic, a corner of a foreign field, the Indian history of a British sport. And while I'm mentioning cricket, I'll give a plug to one of my favourite gift sites. It's called sportingnation.com.au. It's run by my friend Tim Rath. And what Tim does is he collects and takes pictures of old sporting artefacts cricket bats, wooden tennis rackets woolen footy jumpers and then he prints the images on gift items and artworks and homewares so I've got a lovely toilet bag that's got a row of old 70s and 80s bats on it so if you have a difficult to buy for a friend who'd absolutely love to have Clive Lloyd's Stuart Surridge or Graham Wood's grey nickel scoop lined up on his toilet bag go to sportingnation.com.au toilet bags, coffee mugs, trays, even soap Get your sporting theme gifts at sportingnation.com.au. Well, it's time now for the speech of the week. And I flagged this with Ram, but we're going to play Gandhi's spiritual statement recorded at Kingsley Hall in 1931. The Columbia Gramophone Company captured Gandhi's voice on recording. Gandhi was somewhat reluctant to release his first record and in the end decided to read an old essay he'd written entitled On God. So I'm not sure this is a true depiction of the power of Gandhi's speech, but it is his voice recorded for all time. So here it is, Gandhi on spirituality.
0: There is an indefinable, mysterious power that pervades everything. I feel it, though I do not see it. It is this unseen power which makes itself felt and yet defies all proof, because... It is so unlike all that I perceive through my senses. It transcends the senses, but it is possible to reason out the existence of God to a limited extent. Even in ordinary affairs, we know that people do not know who rules or why and how he rules. And yet they know that there is a power that certainly rules. In my tour last year in Mysore, I met many poor villagers, and I found upon inquiry that they did not know who ruled Mysore. They simply said, some god ruled it. If the knowledge of these poor people was so limited about their ruler, I, who am infinitely lesser in respect to god than they to their ruler, need not be surprised if I do not realize the presence of God, the King of Kings. Nevertheless, I do feel, as the poor villagers felt about Mysore, that there is orderliness in the universe. There is an unalterable law governing everything and every being that exists or lives. It is not a blind law, for no blind law can govern the conduct of living beings. And thanks to the marvelous researches of Sir J.C. Bose, it can now be proved that even matter is life. That law, then, which governs all life is God. Law and the lawgiver are one. I may not deny the law or the lawgiver because I know so little about it or him. Just as my denial or ignorance of the existence of an earthly power will avail me nothing, even so my denial of God and his law will not liberate me from its operation. Whereas humble and mute acceptance of divine authority makes life's journey easier, even as the acceptance of earthly rule makes life under it easier. I do dimly perceive that whilst everything around me is ever-changing, ever-dying, there is, underlying all that change, a living power that is changeless, that holds all together, that creates, dissolves, and recreates. That informing power or spirit is God, and since nothing else that I see merely through the senses can or will persist, he alone is. And is this power benevolent or malevolent? I see it as purely benevolent, for I can see that in the midst of death, life persists. In the midst of untruth, truth persists. In the midst of darkness, light persists. Hence I gather that God is life, truth, light, He is love. He is the supreme good. But he is no God who merely satisfies the intellect if he ever does. God, to be God, must rule the heart and transform it. He must express himself in every smallest act of his votary. This can only be done through a definite realization more real than the five senses can ever produce. Sense perceptions can be and often are false and deceptive. However real they may appear to us. Where there is realization outside the senses, it is infallible. It is proved not by extraneous evidence but in the transformed conduct and character of those who have felt the real presence of God within. Such testimony is to be found in the experiences of an unbroken line of prophets and sages in all countries and climes. To reject this evidence is to deny oneself. This realization is preceded by an immovable faith. He who would, in his own person, test the fact of God's presence can do so by a living faith. And since faith itself cannot be proved by extraneous evidence, the safest course is to believe in the moral government of the world and therefore in the supremacy of the moral law, the law of truth and love. Exercise of faith will be the safest, where there is a clear determination, summarily, to reject all that is contrary to truth and love. I confess that I have no argument to convince through reason. Faith transcends reason. All I can advise is not to attempt the
2: impossible. So much of the episode was dedicated to the Indian independence struggle And it is a shame that Gandhi's political speeches aren't captured on audio. So I thought to take us out, I'd get Ram Guha to read a little bit of the Quit India speech from 1942.
1: This is from a speech that Gandhi gave in Bombay, now Mumbai, on the 8th of August 1942 uh, to the All India Congress Committee. And I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs and I'm starting now. I believe that in the history of the world, there has not been a more genuinely democratic struggle for freedom than ours. I read Carlisle's French Revolution when I was in prison and Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru has told me something about the Russian Revolution. But it is my conviction that inasmuch as these struggles were fought with the weapon of violence, they failed to realize the democratic ideal. In the democracy in which I have envisaged a democracy established by non-violence, there will be equal freedom for all. Everybody will be his own master. It is to join a struggle for such democracy that I invite you today. Once you realise this, you will forget the differences between Hindus and Muslims and think of yourselves as Indians only engaged in the common struggle for independence. Well, that's
2: it for this mega episode of the Speak Ola podcast. A huge thank you to Ramachandra Guha. Do get his book, Gandhi 1914-1948, to The Years That Changed the World, as well as his other books on Gandhi and India and cricket. Thank you also for the continued support from my friends at Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados and also to sportingnation.com.au. Fantastic for that person you know who wants old scoreboard numbers printed on a toilet bag. Thank you to Declan Fay for some audio production work. Thank you to David Bridie for writing and recording our theme music. I'm Tony Wilson and you can find out more about me at tonywilson.com.au. There's information on my books there, including 1989, The Great Grand Final, and my new picture book, Humpty Dumpty, sat on the slide. I give talks about speeches, and I'm an MC as well. And Speakola is my labour of love, so please do send in your great speech, or your friend's great speech, or recommend a speech to us, and tell a friend about the podcast. Subscribe, give us a five-star rating, write a review. All those things are really helpful at this early stage. Thank you for listening. Speak well. Until next time.